We'll continue our worship this morning reading Genesis chapter 46, verse 28, all the way through Genesis 47, verse 28. And just to be clear here, there's a footnote in my Bible, but it's an uneven break. The he referenced at the start of this is Jacob. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and their herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are a hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them possession of the land in Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by the reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they had bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. 
He supplied them with food in exchange for all of their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him following the year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all of the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. All of the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them, and from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had fixed had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh had given them. Therefore, they did not have to sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvests you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and for your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt seventeen years. So the days of Jacob... The years of his life were 147 years. Good morning. just want to say I'm thankful for the way in which we respect the reading of God's Word. We have long passages here towards the end of Genesis. We've been working through Genesis for some time now, and there's five chapters of the ending. And so we're moving through very quickly. Uh, what holds this together here, then, is the family of Israel gains land, and Pharaoh gains land. And this is what makes this one passage altogether and why it's been chosen to read such a long passage for us this morning. As we continue uh, through Genesis and working through verse by verse, this, is, this was the best part just now. We've heard the words of God. After this, we are trying to understand it, we're trying to apply it to our own lives, but we give uh, the greatest respect to these inerrant words, the words on which our entire lives are based, the words that are breathed out by God in Scripture. So let's pray together uh, before we continue. Actually, let me give you a couple of announcements uh, real briefly. There is a Connect card. We've run out of these in previous years, and I just, if you, if we don't have your information, could you please fill that out? And especially, there is a little place to circle where it says whether or not you'd like to be added to our WhatsApp group chat. Now, I know in previous years, things like uh, phone lists and things like that have, have happened, but nowadays, we just have a WhatsApp chat. And so if you'd like to know what's happening and get announcements, could you circle that and we'll be able to contact you. This week, we would let you know that there is a midweek worship um, Wednesday night at 6.30 here, and there's a men's breakfast Wednesday morning at 8.30. Thank you. Uh, talk to Larry. Could you put your hand up? Stand up. 
<laughs> stand, stand up so people can see who you are. If you'd like to come to men's breakfast on Wednesday, talk to Larry. It's at the Norseman at 8.30. And there's also a Tuesday night Bible study uh, that's here at 6.30. Um, please come and be involved. We, we, a lot of our stuff shuts down for the summer, giving people a break, and we're doing sports and all those things and being part of the community. But please come and be part of the church. We are also uh, raising money to replace the hymnals. And a lot of people are buying hymnals for themselves. We have new hymnals that we're going to order that have all the modern congregational singing songs that we do, like Christ Alone and 10,000 Reasons and, you know, Blessed Be Your Name. All these, these songs that aren't in the old hymnal but are true classic congregational singing songs. And we mostly are buying those for our midweek service where we don't use the PowerPoint. So if you would like to have one of those for at home or to help the church buy them, they work out to be about $25 each. And if you'd just mark that on your envelope, as well as how many you'd like for home and how many for the church. If you would mark that right on your envelope, they will keep track of that before we make that order in the next couple of weeks. Let's pray. Oh, thank you. One other, one other thing. I've got my parents in the front row letting me know all the things I'm forgetting. Um, there is a Father's Day barbecue next week. And so there is a sign-up sheet, two sign-up sheets, that are going to go around during the sermon. Don't be too distracted. And you can sign up for if you'd like to bring something or if you'd like to serve or both. One is a bring things and one is a serve sheet. And we will enjoy each other's fellowship next week over another meal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for everything that we have received in Christ Jesus. We come to you with thanksgiving in our hearts. And if we do not, Lord, I pray that you would forgive us and that you would grant us true repentance so that we could remember your goodness and come to you with thanksgiving, knowing that we have received everything of eternal value in the work of Jesus, his perfect obedience, death, and resurrection. And so, Lord, when we come to you with thanksgiving in our hearts, knowing that you have already given us these things, then we are so excited to know more of you, to learn of the character that you reveal of yourself in your word, and we are excited and desperate to know more. With, with, we have a, a taste for the goodness of God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would grant us thanksgiving and that we could truly sing, Blessed be your name in hardship. Blessed be your name in times of blessing and prosperity. Lord, that we would bless you in all things because of the thanksgiving you've granted us. And so, Lord, it's in that thanksgiving that we repent this morning, for we have sinned. We have failed to perfectly love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we have failed to perfectly love our neighbors as ourselves. And so, Lord, we boast only in you. We have failed, but you have succeeded. And that is where our joy lies. So we repent this morning. We ask that you would grant to us true repentance, which means that we are changed. And we ask that you would grant us the grace to walk in the freedom that we have been given in Jesus. We also lift up all those who have need. You tell us that you are the one who provides, but you also command us to ask you. And so, Lord, we ask two things regularly in our church. We ask that you would grant us the wisdom and the resources to love one another well. And we ask that you would be our one true provider and would get all the glory as you meet all of our needs according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. We ask that you would do these things for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
We have a long passage this morning and a short sermon. Let's jump into it. Genesis 46, 28 to 30. He, that is Jacob, had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Jacob and Joseph have been separated some 20 years. And Jacob has thought that he has been dead the entire time. Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery and then imprisoned. And God elevated him in Egypt to the point of being the vizier of Egypt, the, the prime minister, taking care of all things. And he greatly benefited Egypt uh, because he prepared as God planned for the famine to come. And so now Joseph, alone in this whole area of the world, has vast stores of food. Everyone else is starving, and people are coming in from all around, as far as you can travel, to receive food from the storage that Joseph has prepared on behalf of Pharaoh. And the spotlight in the Joseph story has increasingly been on Judah, who just gets a brief mention here. It's an important one because it shows just how completely God has graciously transformed Judah when he was the one who was responsible for separating Joseph from Jacob, selling him into slavery, lying to Jacob about what had happened, is now charged with making sure that they are reunited. And so this is, a, this is an important point of the story. Judah, the one who separated them, is now reuniting his father and his brother. Joseph we've seen, has been calm and controlled when necessary, but his underlying passion and his exuberant love for his family keeps on bubbling up out of him at times. He has to go and find privacy. Here he rushes to his father. And far from playing the aloof, impersonal Egyptian vizier, waiting for his servants, Joseph runs out, hitches his own chariot, which he probably hasn't done in a while, in a rush to greet his father, and the reunion is a very emotional one indeed. Though the narrator even tells us of Joseph's travel and his own preparations and hitching his chariot, he then uses a verb for Joseph's arrival that speaks of sudden and dramatic appearance. In fact, it is only used elsewhere in Genesis of God's sudden appearance to the patriarchs of Israel. So he believed to be dead for 20 years, and Joseph now appears before his father, and it's shocking He's alive, radiant with power and grandeur, making quite the overwhelming impression. So every other time it says appeared in this sense, it's talking about God appearing out of nowhere seemingly. Joseph now appears before his father and it's, it's overwhelming. This was more than a family reunion. It was confirmation that God's plan was intact, that they had not misread the signs in previous years, that when Joseph had first seemed to be God's choice, this is all being made clear now. And for Jacob, it is as though he has just received his son back from the dead. And so his final statement here, verse 30, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, and know that you are still alive. It sounds kind of dreary, it sounds kind of dark, but this is actually a message of great hope and peace. His words parallel those of Simeon in the temple, Luke 2, 29 and 30, 
who was promised by God that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He was promised that he would see salvation before he would be entrusted to it in his death. So then he was promised by God that he would not see death before he'd seen Jesus. And when upon witnessing baby Jesus, he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And so now that Jacob has seen Joseph alive, he knows by sight now that, God had, that everything God had promised him is accomplished. And so Jacob can die in peace, having seen for himself that his future is secure. He can die now knowing that his family's future is secured by God. And so this is a message of great hope, to die in peace. Now I've seen, now I know, my faith is secure, now I can die in peace. This is a great blessing of God, for we each come to this place in our lives where we die. It continues, verse 31, and we'll read a longer chunk here. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan, and now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Now, the point of, of this section is to understand that Joseph, always the consummate wise ruler, is taking every precaution to make sure that Pharaoh gives the directive for his family to settle in Goshen outside of Egyptian society. And Joseph is always described as actively pursuing God's plan and purposes. Uh, for the biblical audience, this becomes synonymous with genuine wisdom. Real wisdom, true wisdom, is to fear God, to take him at his word, and to live according to his promises. And so while Joseph does these amazing things and his wisdom is lauded throughout the land, really he doesn't do anything amazing. It's not rocket science. He hears the word of God. He does what the Word of God says, lives as though the Word of God is true, and this is great wisdom. This is the wisdom of Solomon, church. This is the best kind of wisdom. This is wisdom beyond surpassing. If you can hear the Word of God, believe the Word of God, and live as though the Word of God is true, this is to be wise. And this is why the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so Joseph is 
still actively pursuing God's plan and purposes. Because true wisdom is never passive. It actively accommodates and pursues the kingdom of God. And so a second purpose is revealed in Joseph's activity here. Not only will his administration of Egypt provide food for his family and pasture for their livestock, but it will provide a place of relative isolation from both the corrupting Canaanite and Egyptian influences so that the Israelite family will retain their unique identity until God's promise of making them a great nation is fulfilled. And so they come to Egypt, but not quite. They're in Egypt, but on the outskirts. They have their own commune, and they're not in the place of corruption because they're a small group, and they would easily be assimilated. And so Joseph, pursuing God's plan and purpose, makes sure that this all is just so. And to this goal, Joseph takes advantage of an ancient feud, perhaps as old as Cain and Abel, between the workers of the land and shepherds of flocks. In the ancient world, this is an ongoing feud. The shepherd people, the farmers, they both have a different purpose for the land. And while cattle can graze, sheep are just a problem for farmers. And so there's, throughout ancient uh, writings, we see this feud at work. Now, it is not as though Egypt had no livestock at all. But by this time, it was a fundamental difference of national identity that Egyptians were farmers as opposed to shepherds. And so it wasn't as though there was no sheep or no shepherds in ancient Egypt. The point is, is their identity is we're a farming community. We're not a shepherding community. Those guys we don't like and don't even intermarry with. It was an abomination for an Egyptian, a farmer, to intermarry with the shepherding tribes. And so when Joseph's brothers answer Pharaoh's question of their occupation, that they are shepherds from a long line of shepherds, it solidifies the impression that they are not fit for polite Egyptian society, which is exactly what Joseph intends here, to separate them, uh, separate life for them in the land of Goshen. So they'll be in the safety of Egypt. They'll have the, the provision of Egypt, but they would not become Egypt. And so in this way, Joseph provided for his family while preserving them from intermarriage and assimilation. Again, another important part of the story here, that they solidify themselves as shepherds, people other than the farmers. Another key point is emphasized here. Much in contrast with later Egyptian kings, Pharaoh is very magnanimous here. He offers the brothers far more than they had requested. They are given possession of whatever lands they wish in Egypt. They are invited even to oversee Pharaoh's own herds, the numbers of which are about to increase drastically. And he almost ignores the fact that they have just asserted that they are abominations in Egypt. They are total outcasts in Egypt. And he's like, well... Welcome, settle wherever you'd like. And so he, he is shown to be very kind here. It, it, it's emphasized how kind uh, and how much gratitude this Pharaoh has towards Joseph. And so through Joseph's wise planning, Pharaoh provided land and food for Jacob's family in the midst of a famine while also protecting them from assimilation in Egypt. Continues Genesis 47, 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. 
This is key. Verse 8, And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Now the meeting of Jacob with Pharaoh is presented separately from that of the sons uh, to avoid the impression that Jacob is coming before Pharaoh for a favor. The sons have already come before Pharaoh. They've received a favor from Pharaoh. Jacob does not request anything. In fact, their roles are completely reversed. Jacob is the one who has already received God's favor. And now he becomes a source of benefit to Pharaoh. Jacob speaks blessing over Pharaoh both at the beginning and the end of their encounter. And so they meet as though kings of two nations, despite the fact that Jacob is a king over 70-plus wives and Pharaoh is the king of a great empire. He's settled, safe, and prosperous. Well, Jacob has nothing but his family. It is really Jacob who holds court here, Jacob who grants blessings and who ends the conversation. He is the recipient of God's promise, and he believes the promise far beyond Egyptian realities. I remember reading of a missionary who I I thought was just doing a fantastic job, and he had great resources come to him as he was doing mission work. I can't even remember the fellow's name. And he talked at one point about how he never begged for money from people. He said, it's not though I'm too proud to ask people for what I don't have. He says, but I am a son of God. I've been made a child of God through adoption through Jesus Christ. I have a father with unlimited resources. And so while people donate to our cause all the time, I never try to pressure them for money. I never beg people for money because I live as a prince. He says, I don't dig through the trash. I don't, I don't beg on the side of the road. I live in the provision that God provides. And this is exactly what Jacob's doing here. And I'm not saying it's never the right thing to ask for money. Don't, don't. I'm just telling a story. Don't read too much into that. But what Jacob does here is he comes before the king, the, the ruler of an empire, and he's like, oh, bless you, my son. Like, he's like, I, I also am a king. And he behaves as a king. He blesses him at beginning and end, and he's the one who dismisses him. He believes the promise, even though he has nothing in his hand. And as the recipient of God's promised blessings, Jacob's words here were more than just a wish. He doesn't just wish Pharaoh well. He spoke for God in granting the blessings to Pharaoh. And so truly, as the king or or the patriarch of a greater kingdom with vastly more wealth than Pharaoh's, Jacob speaks and grants blessing to Pharaoh rather than Pharaoh granting to him. Do you see this? So Pharaoh has just granted lands to the sons, and then Jacob grants blessing to Pharaoh. And the blessings that follow in verses 13 to 26 are meant to be understood as a striking fulfillment of these blessings spoken by Jacob and accomplished by Joseph. 
The blessing of Pharaoh follows after the provision that Pharaoh has just granted the sons, fulfilling the promise that God gave to Abraham's family at his calling, Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so again, one of the main concerns of these final chapters of Genesis is to show that God is the God of truth whose promises can be trusted and counted upon, who is capable and faithful to accomplish all his good purpose for his chosen people. They can trust him in slavery and oppression. They can trust him in famine. They can trust him in exile, away from their land, homes, and family. They can trust him no matter the circumstance because he is all good and all powerful and he keeps his covenant of love. And so some of the minute details of God's promise to his people are played out in long form here. These are longer stories, but they're to show us that every detail of what God promised to Abraham's family came exactly true. And so we have a chapter here about the great blessing of Pharaoh. Later, the perennial enemies of God's people, but this Pharaoh, who is kind and gracious to God's people, receives this incredible blessing, essentially the the wealthiest person in the history of the world. And because he blessed the sons and gives them land, Jacob, on God's behalf, blesses Pharaoh. And we see this played out, showing that God keeps the details of what he has promised. Now, in between the two blessings that Jacob speaks over Pharaoh, Pharaoh inquires about Jacob's amazing longevity. He says, verse 8, how many are the days of the years of your life? Now, we have to understand that the Egyptians were preoccupied with death. Uh, The Pharaohs, they professed to be eternal. They, They said that they were immortal, but they sought to immortalize their bodies through all manner of magic and mad science. You have the the mummification process. You have these great crypts with all of their servants and supplies. They they were fixated on the afterlife. It, it, It was so clear in Egyptian society that this life is short. And they, they bragged of being immortal, but it wasn't the case. And so he's like, how are you so old? It's, it's a polite question from one sovereign to another. At 130 years, and he will live another 17 years, Jacob has already exceeded the ideal Egyptian lifespan of 110 years. So they, they just aspired. You know, if you really could get all the science just right and do the right spells and live, uh, I don't know if they knew what healthy living even looked like, but at this point, you know, drink the blood of whatever virgins. and You know, you, you could maybe aspire to live 110 years. And so Jacob's age is very impressive to Pharaoh. And so in their meeting, Jacob blesses Pharaoh twice, and Pharaoh has a question. How did you, how did you live so old? Jacob's response is surprising for a 130-year-old. Verse 9, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Well, somewhat less than the 180 years of his father, And the 175 years of his grandfather Abraham, uh, Jacob's 130 years is pretty hard to define as few. Now, Jacob's years have been difficult, mostly because of his own actions. But the paradox of Jacob's life here is that he is blessed by God and the channel of divine blessing to the world, while at the same time, his days were few and filled with trouble. 
So it is with many of God's people today. And so Jacob comes empty-handed before the Egyptian sovereign, the empire, the, the, maybe the most powerful empire at this time, and he blesses him. And yet, he's empty-handed. Also, the, the Pharaoh is, is so amazed at his age, and he's like, no, few and difficult, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Jacob's response here echoes the earlier peace he had expressed with the dying once he had seen Joseph. Because he considered his life on earth to be but a temporary sojourn, difficult but mercifully short. He's only 130. 130 years isn't very long in Jacob's reckoning. Do you see this? He could be like, man, I'm the oldest guy here. I outlived you all. I am ancient. Instead, he's like, no, this is few years. Few years in the life of eternity, in the light of eternity. He's here temporary sojourn. It's difficult. It's hard. But mercifully short. And so the result is that the landless Jacob who comes to shelter in Egypt as a rescue from famine confidently blesses the sitting Pharaoh ostensibly with long life and increased lands because he is now completely assured of his blessed status. Upon seeing Joseph, he knows it's all true. What God has promised is absolutely true. He's seen it all through his life. And so he is totally assured of his blessed status while all while honestly confessing, few and evil have been the days of my life. This sentiment is repeated by Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 17. So we do not lose heart. Though our elder, outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It becomes clear in Genesis that there's a trajectory from blessing in material provisions to finally one who sees a blessing over his life that goes beyond this life. That Jacob's living for more than now. Many modern scholars would deny the fact that the Old Testament has this perception of eternity and life after death. But it is actually clear throughout the Old Testament, and especially the book of Proverbs, that we are not living for just this time alone. And so Jacob is revealed here that Jacob understands that few and evil are the years of his life, and yet he is blessed. This light, momentary affliction. It is not as though Paul was so young that life seemed so short. He had a long and painful life where he was tortured and beaten and imprisoned. And yet it is a light, momentary affliction in light of eternity. Verse 11. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. And so the Israelite family is blessed by God far more abundantly than they ask or think. But this also serves as a striking contrast to the Egyptians who at the same time will lose their lands 
as a result of the extended famine. So there's two things connecting this together. We're going to read the last long passage here. But the thing connecting this, see this, Israel gets lands just as Egypt loses them. Pharaoh blesses Israel, and Pharaoh is blessed by God, spoken by Jacob and through the administration of Joseph. which serves all the more as a condemnation for later pharaohs who would forget the goodness of God and turn on his people and oppress them three pages later in the text. Let me read 13 to 26. I will read fast. You've heard it before, but I want to read it again so it's fresh. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes, for our money is gone? And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herd of the livestock are all my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priest he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and the harvest you shall give and at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Now in saying... To this day, the author is talking about when his day and not our day, obviously. And it also shows the historicity. So the author is not saying, look, this is a fairy tale I'm telling you. But he's telling them of a historic event. Look, this thing that Joseph instituted in Pharaoh. See how it is still the statute in, in Egypt today? This is because it's a true story. And secondly, he earlier used the term Ramses for the uh, area where they were settled. This is a much later word for this area that did not exist until quite a long later. So it gives us an idea of how much further along from the events it was written. Now, this final section documents the sequence of how the people of Egypt were impoverished, not by Joseph, but by the famine. Joseph actually saved their lives. First, they spent all their money buying food. All the money that was found in the land of Egypt was brought into Pharaoh's house. So just think in terms of, of wealth comparatively. <laughs> all the money became Pharaoh's. 
Next, they traded all the livestock in the land for a year's supply of food. So all the money, all the livestock in the land of Egypt and Canaan, and perhaps other areas as well, became pharaohs. Then finally, verse 18, when the people in the land had nothing left but land and their lives, they offered these in exchange for food and seed to once again sow their crops when the famine should end. So all the money in the land became Pharaoh's, all the livestock of the land, and now all the land became his, and all the people of the land from one end of Egypt to the other became his slaves. This word servant means slave or servant. In the context of being purchased, it means slave. Still, the people did not regard Joseph as a tyrant, but as a savior, praising him, verse 25, saying, you have saved our lives. Now, this doesn't seem super kind. He does seem like a tyrant in our way of thinking, but you have to appreciate that uh, 20% royal tax that Joseph was imposing on them was, by ancient standards, relatively low. In fact, you and I are quite accustomed to higher than 20% tax. So Joseph uh, has made it so that the land all belongs to Pharaoh, and now the people are tenement farmers, they, the land belongs to the king, but they are paying a 20% uh, payment on what they raise. A typical interest, for instance, on average was one-third in this day. So if someone lends you the seed, just the seed to sow in your own land, they would expect one-third of what you produced back. So for Joseph to grant them the land and the seed, and he owned them ostensibly, they are only paying 20%. This sounds like actually a really good deal to them. So the Egyptian people aren't like, oh, we're oppressed. They're actually like, oh, okay, sweet. You're 20%? Fantastic. Don't, we, don't, we don't die, we don't starve, and we only pay 20%. This is actually quite gracious. And so Joseph did reduce the entire nation of Egypt to tenants farming on state land, yet they're grateful to him knowing that they would have starved and that he was gracious in his dealings with them on Pharaoh's behalf. The shocking thing is that at the same time, the temple precincts and the newly granted Israelites' holdings in Goshen became the only privately owned properties in Egypt. And so just as the Egyptians are losing their lands and were enslaved, the Israelites, a nation of priests to God, were enriched and became landowners. And in fact, both these groups that did not lose their land were relatives of Joseph. Joseph was related by blood to the Israelites and related by marriage to the priests. And so the priests kept their homes and their lands, and the Israelites kept their homes and their lands. Enriched, even as the Egyptians are losing everything through famine, Joseph's blessing his family by, well, God's blessing Joseph's family through Joseph. And finally, verse 27, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Do you see this? At the end of this, when the trajectory of the world's economy is everybody's losing everything, God is blessing the Israelites. Now, it's not the land he promised yet. It's not, you know, everything's milk and honey like it will be later on in Canaan, but they are preserved in Egypt, and God's just very obviously blessing them in these ways. They gained possessions, even as others lost them. They were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Finally, and this is again, it, it, it seems like we have to go a long way to get there, but the, prom, the commands of God from the very beginning of Genesis 
And the promises of God from the middle of Genesis are now fulfilled here. So Genesis is a book, remember. God commanded Adam and Eve, Genesis 1.28, to be fruitful and multiply. And Noah and his sons, Genesis 9.1. And this is also what God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Genesis 48.4. I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And so it's a command to earlier ones. Now it's a promise to God's chosen people. And it was now finally fulfilled by God for his people in Egypt, a place of great oppression, suffering, and slavery was planned out by God for the good of his people to make them fruitful and to make them multiply when they would not choose to. He could then promise to do it by these struggles. Land and food was provided for Jacob's family, even as food was provided for the people of Egypt in exchange for their land and livestock. Both are attributed to the wisdom of God exemplified in Joseph. Like Solomon after him, Joseph's wisdom was not the merely human wisdom of clever decisions at the appropriate times. Godly wisdom is the perception and insight God gladly grants to all who ask, James 1.5, which allows those who fear the Lord to live in harmony with the revealed will of God. The peace that passes understanding is the wisdom granted by God. For you to enjoy life now, serving God and enjoying the things He's blessed you with, requires that you know that He's working everything out that He's promised. If you think that this is all that there is, or if you think that you need to somehow gain more for yourself, you will live a miserable and miserly life. But if you understand that every good thing is promised to you in Christ Jesus, you can not only be content with what we have for this temporary, light, momentary affliction, but you can also enjoy it. You can enjoy your marriage so much more if you understand God's purpose for your marriage in bringing you to rejoice in the gospel. You can enjoy the home you live in now so much more. If you understand that this is not your eternal abode, but this is the temporary spot. You know, we go camping, and we don't complain too much about the accommodations. We know it's just for a time. The will of God had been revealed to Joseph and to the patriarchs. God would bless this family, and he would make them into a great nation. And so later readers can hear this and see wisdom is to work in this way. Wisdom is to walk believing that God's promises are true. And Joseph's wise rule over the land of Egypt not only ensured the peace and prosperity of his family, it also saved the people of Egypt from starvation, but most pointedly here, it prospered Pharaoh abundantly. Becomes literally, I think, the wealthiest person you could imagine. The whole empire, all the wealth of the empire is his. Even the people become his slaves, and they're, they're willingly becoming slaves. They're selling themselves as slaves to him for the food he would provide and the seed. Here was a ruler who graciously welcomed the fledgling Israelite nation, who promoted Joseph and gave his family both food and land. Uh, but though we are generations away from the Exodus chronologically, remember that it is only three pages away in the literature. 
Any Israelite who hears this story will not be unaware of the realities of the oppression and slavery which are soon to come in this place where God has brought his people to be. But because this Pharaoh treated Israel well, they flourished and he became powerful and wealthy. When in the Exodus, a new king would forget that God had saved them through Joseph and would enslave and afflict God's people, he would have none of the blessings of God. He wouldn't be able to hinder the prosperity of God's people. Again, it is said, uh, Exodus 1.8, that the people multiplied and were fruitful, even despite the oppression. So one Pharaoh who blesses Israel and they are fruitful and multiply, he is greatly blessed. Another Pharaoh, three pages later, oppresses Israel, they're still fruitful and multiplying. God will bless his people whether or not the nations around them seek their good or seek their harm. The only difference is in how God will treat them according to his promise to his chosen people. Genesis 12, 3, I'll point you back to again. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. The New Testament equivalent of this promise is found with Jesus' words in Matthew 25, 40. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And here in Genesis, God blessed this Pharaoh because he had blessed the family of Abraham. He was given all the money, livestock, land, and people of Egypt according to the reward of God by the blessing Jacob prayed over him and by the wise administration of Joseph. The future Pharaoh, who treated Israel harshly, forgot what God had done, would lose his property, his livestock, his people, and ultimately his own life as God cursed him and his land. Now, what do we learn from this? We learn that because God is faithful to every detail of his promise, even the details into what happens to unbelievers in the way that they treat God's chosen people, every detail of his promise, we know we can trust, as Jacob did, that though the years of our lives be few and difficult, we can die in peace knowing our future is secure. This life is a light momentary affliction preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. We also know because God is faithful to every detail of the promise, Matthew 16, 27, we can trust that God will repay each person according to what he has done. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. If you look up the word vengeance in your uh, Bible, you will see that it happens so many times in conjunction with God saying, I will take vengeance for my people. Dozens of times where God says he will take vengeance for his people. The people here see that when a Pharaoh treats them well, he is abundantly blessed according to God's promise to his people. And those who curse them are cursed. We don't have to take it into our own hands, but we can trust that because God is faithful to every detail of his promise, People will receive what they have, according to what they have done. And finally, because God is faithful to every detail of his promise, those who trust him then will be eager, Galatians 6, 9 to 10, to do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. If we know that God is blessing 
according to those who bless and cursing according to those who curse. When Jesus says, I say to you as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. We know that we will become, as we trust that God is faithful, we become people that are passionate about blessing God's people. It will become a core part of our lives. It will become one of our greatest ambitions to do good to the family of faith. It will be something that that we're excited about. It'll be ambitions that we're up thinking at night about is how we can be a blessing in discipleship, in sharing the good news of the gospel, in sharing material goods with those around us who are in need. We'll be excited about seeing others, children, do well and others be promoted in their businesses and promoted in their workplace. We'll be excited about good happening through us to God's people when we know that God behaves in this way, that this is a revealed aspect of God's character. And so Paul writes in Galatians 6.10, do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. He gives the reason first in verse 9. He says, let us not grow weary. Sorry, I was trying to wait for it here. I messed her up. I'm sorry. Listen carefully. He says in verse 9, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Do good to everyone, and especially those who are the household of faith. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Let's pray. Father, even as we go through the, what we would maybe consider the boring parts of the Bible, I thank you that it is all God-breathed and useful to us to train us in righteousness, to rebuke us in sin, and disciple us. Father, I pray that you would do this now by your Holy Spirit. Even as I throw generalizations of things that this means to us, I pray that your Holy Spirit is giving us very specific guidance convicting us in very specific areas of ways we have not treated your family well and ways in which you would give us aspiration to do so much more. I pray that you would convict us of areas that we have not trusted you, that you are accomplishing every part of your plan and purpose and promise to us. And that we would see through the way Jacob is so slowly and carefully and and intermittently back and forth and two steps forward and one step back, you are ultimately gracious to him and bring him into this place of great faith where he can sit before the ruler of Egypt, bless him and say, few and evil are the days of this life, but I am one who is blessed by God and can grant blessing to you. Lord, I pray that we would not weigh out our blessing this morning by the things this world values, but we would see what you have promised to us through Jesus and have granted us freely by his perfect obedience and his death on our behalf. We give you praise. Sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. Change us, I pray. Do not leave us as we are, but transform us Jesus' name, amen.